Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thanks for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. Please consider subscribing if you haven't already. What is going on with the Canadian economy? With the global economy? The cost of living seems like it's spiraling out of control, at least in some categories. Food prices are going up and we've even been told to expect shortages. Gas prices have hit $2 per liter in many parts of the country. For regular folks struggling to get by, it seems like the struggle will only get more challenging. And we're all told to buckle up for the long haul. This stuff might be around for quite some time. Words like stagnation, stagflation, and recession, they're all being tossed around. How bad is it going to get? What's causing it? And what can we do about it, if anything? We need someone to level with us, lay it all out straight, and that's what our guest today is going to do. Professor Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University is back with us. Great to have him. Hey, Ian, thanks for joining us. Uh, good morning, Anthony, and thank you for inviting me. Now, I got to say, I talk to just a lot of folks about issues of the day, and the thing I'm hearing about more and more is just everyone saying, wow, did you see the gas price? Wow, did you see the price of how yogurt's gone up, or this or that has gone up, or concerns about interest rates? I mean, this is this is a very vibrant thing now for people. This is front of mind. And, and like I said, for folks who, who, who don't have a, a lot of cash in the bank, I mean, th- these are getting worrisome times. Um, Anthony, I completely agree. And um, uh, I don't consider myself old, but I am old enough to have lived through the 1970s. I came as the end of the workforce uh, in 1972. I was 18 years old. And um, I lived all through the 70s when the inflation started to creep up and creep up and creep up. And uh, it ultimately went double digit. It didn't start out double digit. People seem to think it sort of went from zero to 15 overnight. It didn't. It started out just like now. What we've seen in the last two years, it was two, then three, then four, then it crept up to five, then to six, and so on. And uh, it's very real and pernicious. Inflation is really pernicious because it sneaks up on you and it becomes embedded in every aspect of our lives. Everything we buy, everything we purchase, gasoline, heat, food, uh, car parts, repairs, trips, everything. So it's not some theoretical conversation. And that's why, 
it is actually the nightmare of central bankers because they know how difficult it is to put it back into the bottle, the inflation genie in the bottle, if they allow it to get out of the bottle. And we saw, this isn't theory, this is not theory. I lived through it. I was a mortgage manager, Bank of Montreal, main office, Ottawa, on Wellington Street opposite West Block of Parliament in 1980, when interest rates hit 20%. That was not a theory. That was reality. And anyone who says high interest rates don't kill inflation, don't have not looked at the data. I can tell you, as the rates started to go from 10% to 11 to 12 to 14, I had fewer and fewer customers walking through the door. Hmm. And by the time the rates hit 1920, I was basically sitting there twiddling my thumbs because I had no business. I had no customers. Because mortgages and home ownership, to name one, is extremely sensitive to interest rates. But it's not just home ownership. It, it, it drove the economy into a deep recession, the worst we had experienced since the Great Depression. So that's the antidote. But the well, well, let me ask, before we get into the antidote, then people are going to say, OK, in the interim, I'm worried about my family. How bad can it get? I, I just saw a headline, John Katzmaditis. He's a billionaire. He runs a, a grocery firm in Manhattan, a grocery chain. He's also CEO of United Refining. And he just said uh, that diesel rationing, he expects it will occur this summer, at least in the in the northeastern part of North America. Uh, to me, that seems like not just diesel costs being a problem, but also uh, getting food to places, uh, you know, transportation of goods. Ian, how bad are things going to get in the interim but before the antidote's brought in? I, I think they're going to get worse. Things are going to get worse before they get better. And that's the inevitable, unfortunate, um, uh, tragic outcome of allowing that genie to get out of the bottle. Um, and I do believe, and I've said so since April 2021, uh, at the time of the budget of April 2021, when the central bank and the government of Canada continued to pour gargantuan amounts of stimulus, monetary and fiscal stimulus, into the economy. I just want to stop and unpack that for a moment. You said that on this program a year ago. I remember. I did. I did. The fiscal stimulus was, uh, I want to use plain English because that's the way I speak and I talk to my students that way. When you run up a deficit, I don't care what you're spending the deficit on. You could be, as John Maynard Keynes famously said, have hire workers to dig a hole in the ground every day. At the end of the day, fill the hole back in. It really doesn't matter whether you're spending it on income support or on this or that. You are stimulating the economy when you are running deficits. I'm not one of those people who says that all deficits are bad. I don't believe that. There's a time and place for deficits, such as in very deep recessions or depressions. That's very Keynesian. But what we were doing in April 2021 was we were pouring gigantic deficit, injecting gigantic amounts of money, billions and billions, and the almost all of the jobs lost from the pandemic had been recovered. When you looked, in fact, her own numbers in that budget uh, speech, were, were, she was bragging about the fact that the economy was just doing gangbusters. And it was growing at 5 or 6% GDP growth rate. And yet here we were pouring hundreds of billions of dollars in deficit financing. And so we were stimulating, overstimulating the economy because the crisis from an economic point of view had come to an end, meaning we had recovered all the bad losses from the pandemic of the year before. On the monetary side, we were running rates at the lowest level. I looked this up using data from the Federal Reserve of the United States and the Bank of England. 
They had a graph, each one had a graph going back 250, 300 years to show the the, the rate of interest over that period of time. <laughs> 300 years is the long, long run. Interest rates in that period in neither England, UK or US had ever, 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 ever once, not ever once, gone down to the level we've experienced in the last two or three years down to one quarter of one point. Huh. So the point is, the, and again, the economy had recovered. They even, yes, there were still people, I'm not denying people were still getting sick from COVID and some were tragically dying, of course. I don't disagree with, with that reality. What I'm saying is that the economy had recovered. The job losses had all been recovered. The GDP was growing very strongly, and we were pumping hundreds of billions of dollars of stimulus, unnecessary stimulus into the economy. And I was predicting a year ago, this is not going to end well, because we already had savings rates that were historically unprecedented, which told me in plain English, that the people, all of us getting this stimulus, this, this these income support programs and so forth, literally couldn't spend all of it. <laughs> we were getting so much stimulus, we couldn't spend it all. So we were banking it. So we had our savings rate went from 4% to something like 30%. Unprecedented, but more evidence that we were overstimulating. So I'm not accusing the government of Canada or the Bank of Canada of causing inflation, the, the, this spiral in inflation. I do not believe that. It was caused by the shutting down of the economies around the world in response to the pandemic. And that blew up the supply chains. And that was the original driver of inflation. But what we were doing was exacerbating this inflation, very seriously exacerbating the inflation by pouring more and more stimulus when the economy had already recovered. And so I said, this is going to and drive inflation upward further. And the US was doing it and Canada was doing it. And so now we are unfortunately reaping uh, the wind of those uh, poor or bad uh, fiscal and monetary policy choices over the past year. So Ian, you're saying you predicted this scenario and, and, and you did, like I said, you've gone on multiple different programs. You were here on this podcast a year ago predicting this very scenario. And one would think that some central bankers and other economic minds would say, well, yeah, this kind of happens when you just, you know, throwing all this cash at the floodgates. And to your point, Christy Freeland even said, oh, we're actually doing okay in a number of indicators. They kept doing it. And the yeah. frustration is is why because we're here in this situation where life is getting rough and and i want to talk yeah. about the macroeconomics of the war in ukraine and, and other aspects in a moment as well but they did something knowing that it would cause these distortionary effects in the economy where I, I mean the people who have banked those savings i guess they were in a position to bank the savings but i know there's a lot of people out there who who were not and are not and they are now feeling the brunt of all of this that ain't fair. Did they just do it for political feel goods? I mean, what, did did nobody in a position of authority, Bank of Canada governor, raise their hand and say, "Guys, stuff's gonna happen, and we're not gonna like it"? It uh, uh, the answer I'm gonna come up with, and forgive me for being sort of academic, but uh, <laughs> there was a, a wonder. I am an academic. There was a, a wonderful book written a couple of years ago by a very distinguished economist at Harvard, uh, who's the former chief economist of the IMF, and he said, "In the name of the book was." this time it's different i remember that. and and it was a wonderful book because uh, decision makers at the top of countries tend to think that okay yes i know the history and i know the theory and i know the research and the scholarship and the evidence but hey 
we're smarter than those people because we know a lot more, we're more modern, we're more sophisticated. I want to just give you a quick historical example, and it is not from ancient history because it affected my life back in the 70s. Canada did not cause the inflation of the 70s in Canada. It's widely the consensus view amongst large numbers of economists, policy wonks, and so forth, was it was caused by then-President Lyndon Johnson's very serious mistake to con uh, fight the, both the war in Vietnam and his Great Society War on Poverty with zero tax increases, and he threatened the Federal Reserve, don't you dare raise interest rates. So he was pouring hundreds of billions of dollars uh, money into the uh, uh, into the American economy to uh, not to stimulate it, but to fight the war on v in Vietnam and the war on poverty. Because our economies are tightly integrated, that inflation seeped over into Canada. We could have responded in the seventies when that came into Canada by putting up interest rates and and cutting back on our spending. However, the Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau at the time didn't, and they were started to run fairly significant deficits even though the economy was growing very strongly throughout the 70s. And, and, and the interest rates were kept relatively low and relative to that time. And so what happened was inflation started to become embedded in the heads of all of us, including me. I bought my first house in 1976. It was a townhouse on the edge of Ottawa. And the reason I bought it was because this casino mentality had become embedded in Canada where it was, you were crazy to save money for the future because you knew that if you saved, the price would go up faster than the um, in the succeeding months or, right. or a year or two than if you'd saved the money. So what it did was everybody went out and spend, 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 borrow, borrow, borrow because it didn't make sense to save. That's the pernicious impact of inflation and it took a 20% interest rate to finally kill it. In this instance, to your question, Anthony, because it's an excellent question, I think that, and, and, and when I use the word politicized, I'm partially agreeing with you. I do not want to suggest that Mr. Macklem, who's a highly educated individual, highly experienced, is a partisan in any way, shape, or form. I've met him at downtown professional events. I don't believe it. However, I think that in the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, maybe since the turn of the new millennium um, in Canada and the U.S., but certainly in Canada, um, politicians have become absolutely freaked out by the idea of any negative growth or any increase in unemployment in a recession or whatever. And so the calls come out for, for from academics, from think tanks, from anti-poverty groups and so forth. Hey, you've got to do something. There's this crisis. GDP just went down 2%. The unemployment rate went up one and a half points. And so they, they pour on the, the, the call goes out for massive spending, massive stimulus, even if it's a relatively small problem. Hmm. And in this instance with COVID, I was watching it from the moment it happened. I'm talking the March, April, 2020 lockdown. I knew right away, we all knew right away, that you know if you send home three quarters of the economy, you're gonna drive the, the unemployment rate through the roof. But I also knew that it was going to be temporary because it was an artificial recession. Right. It wasn't an organic, natural recession where the economy had run out of steam. In this instance, it was artificially created by policymakers ordering everybody to go home. So what that suggested to me was the moment everybody, the lockdown ended, the economy would snap back like a sharp elastic band, a really uh, stretchy elastic band. And that's exactly what happened. After each lockdown, the economy snapped right back. And yet, the central bank, 
of Canada and Christy Freeland. You read her comments in that budget speech. It was truly um, cog cognitive dissonance. In one paragraph, she was saying, the economy's booming. It's just doing fantastically. And in the next paragraph, she said, we're in this deep COVID recession. Now, you cannot be in a deep recession and booming at the same time. <laughs> a contradicts B. It, it, it is literally, and the, this cognitive dissonance, this absolute contradiction, was it, it's in the words. It's not me misinterpreting. I highlighted them in yellow on my, in my PDF document, my digital document, where she was on the one hand, literally in one paragraph, extolling the extraordinary growth and recovery of the economy, and the next thing, we've got to spend a lot more uh, you know, uh, income support uh, because we're in this deep recession. Well, you cannot be both. But but, but, but can it be true in some sense? Because one of the things that I'm, I'm I'm trying to figure out, and and maybe everybody else is as well. Maybe all the economists are as well. Is you've got the the class, the laptop class, who and, and I am a member of them. Okay, we were sent home. You're not going into the office anymore. So I did not get laid off. So what happened was I didn't spend for transportation and I didn't uh, eat out. So not only did I just not eat McDonald's as many times a month, but I also just didn't spend on that money period. So you've got yes. all that cash and you have a lot of middle class, upper middle class people who I think now their big concern with inflation is just, oh, I have whatever it is, 20 grand, 50 grand to invest. What do I do? I don't know the choices to make. That's my big drama in life. And then this whole other category of people who are like, yeah, nice problem to have, buddy. Me, I lost my job. Uh, you know, we're scraping to get by. We live in an area where uh, I have to drive an F-150. I have to gas up to go to work. Oh boy, I am really feeling those gas prices. The grocery prices are going up. Have I gotten a raise? No, I haven't gotten a raise and I don't have that cash in the bank. And those people are really hurting. So I feel like we do have these, I don't know if two solitudes is the right time, but we do have, uh, you know, good problems to have and really bad problems to have. Anthony, I don't dispute what you said. Um, in fact, The Economist at the time, about a year ago, uh, summarized it brilliantly. They called it the 90-10 economy. 90% hmm. of the, and they estimated, their estimate was about 90% of the jobs in the UK GDP had, uh, were still continuing to be paid. They were working from home, knowledge workers, professors, people like you. But 10% the in-person servers, as I like to call them, people in restaurants, or hotels, accommodation, airlines, and so forth, were just absolutely annihilated and devastated. What we did, and, other, and the U.S. did too, was we decided to not just target the 10% who really were suffering enormously, we way overstimulated by dispersing a massive amounts of money to people who should never have received it. I I was making this argument at the time without the data. The data came in only a short time later from the OECD that showed that Canada and the U.S. were the only two countries in the world where GDP went down and income went up. Now, normally in a recession in any country, because income is a big part of GDP, when GDP goes down, income goes down. And that happened in France, U.K., Italy during this last period with COVID. We put so much stimulus into the system, way beyond the 10% of the uh, population that were working and devastated because they were in restaurants and bars and so forth. We pumped way beyond that. And as a consequence, we had GDP going up vertically, uh, GDP collapsing vertically and income going up vertically. And, and again, that's evidence of what I'm saying. We put too much stimulus. We didn't, we were nowhere near surgical enough. And, you know, I think everybody, if I can use a rather colorful analogy, when you, if you have a sadly or tragically or diagnosed with cancer and they decide to use surgery, they want to cut out as little as possible so they don't kill the patient. Right. 
And what they did here was they cut out huge amounts. I mean, they stimulated the economy to, to the tune of three quarters of a trillion dollars in an economy that's only $2 trillion in absolute totality. So I'm not saying we should never have helped those people. Of course we should have. And, you know, Trudeau said at the microphone at the time, I remember watching him and I was getting so upset. He was saying, well, you know, we got to break a few eggs. You know, we don't exactly hmm. know what's going on. This is bogus, Anthony. The CRA, I've been saying this for over a year because I use the CRA data, the aggregated data from the CRA. They have awesome data on every one of us because all of us, 30.5 million people filed tax returns last year, according to the CRA. We are compelled by law to A, file a tax return and tell them everything. How much did we make? Are we single, married, divorced, widowed? How many kids do you have at home? Did you buy a house? Right. When did you buy it? They know everything about us in real time because the employers must submit the withholding taxes every 30 days. So they could have very easily, the, the, the cabinet could have said to the Minister of Canada Revenue, instruct your programmers, reverse the pipeline. The pipeline is the flow of taxes flowing into the government every month from the withholding taxes. Reverse the pipeline and pay $2,000 a month. Credit the bank account of all those people with an income less than X. 60,000, 50,000, whatever. They could have surgically targeted it and they would have paid out far less money and would have only gone to the people that needed the, the, the support, people filing tax returns across Canada. As it was, they used it as a political opportunity to stand up and deliver and announce announceables week after week at the microphone to demonstrate to the can people, we're in charge, we're doing something to help you. And so we paid a huge price for that. We overstimulated massively over three quarters of a trillion dollars. And that in turn, okay, we're a rich country. We can pay, we can do that. But the unintended consequence, they didn't even think about this. What is this going to do to inflation? And that's far more pernicious and destructive than the actual excessive stimulation that occurred at the time. We'll be back with more full comment in just a moment. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Professor Lee, I want to get your take on what's going on overseas, particularly the war in Ukraine, the way those macroeconomics are playing a role or not playing a role in what we're experiencing here right. in Canada. You've talked about all the distortionary things that uh, Justin Trudeau and Christy Freeland just throwing billions, hundreds of billions of dollars uh, out the door. We also hear from people like Professor Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor, saying, look, there's stuff that's going on in Ukraine that that is messing with what's happening here with our food supply, uh, fertilizer. We get whatever the amount is, a large amount of our fertilizer comes uh, from that region. That's going to be put on hold. It's going to mess things up. A lot of concern about rising price of goods, uh, cost of goods, even just scarcity. 
how do you view the war as affecting all of this mess regular folks are dealing with now? I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not going to deny uh, the, the impact of the war. I should disclose, I, I taught in Ukraine over 30 times uh, from 1993 until 2010. I, I've been that I know that country very well, and it has it's an ex- people that may not realize it's one the, one of the great breadbaskets of the world. I remember being working there one time, and I met the uh, agricultural expert from the U.S. embassy, and he told me, you know, he says we're kind of lucky that Ukraine is so poor, which it is, was and is. They're still we're still farming with horses in the mid late 90s, and their productivity was very low. And he said, you know, it's really lucky for Saskatchewan and Alberta and, and Manitoba and the American Midwest that Ukraine is so inefficient because he said if they ever got efficient, they would put us out of business because they apparently have the most fertile soil in the entire world, he told me. And and so Russia and Ukraine produce about 30% of the world's supply of grains. So this is not to be sneezed at and not to be uh, trivialized. And yes, this is disrupting um, the, 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 the food market, the agricultural markets. There's no doubt about it. And of course, Russia is one of the top three producers, according to the IEA, the International Energy Agency, which is a UN body. Um, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and US are the top three producers of oil and gas. Canada, by the way, is number four, albeit a distant number four. And so when you suddenly disrupt that, or the Russians disrupted it and then caused the blowback, which is to shut down or try and reduce purchases, it's going to create shortages. So those are factors that are feeding in as well. I don't deny or dispute that. That's all the more reason for being prudent at home, given that you cannot control forces outside of your country, but you can control forces to a greater degree inside your country. And so this is these these uh, disruptions are occurring. It's going to take probably Anthony and I've been reading up on this on supply chains, both agricultural and otherwise. You know, the estimates I'm reading is it's going to take and assuming that the war comes to an end fairly quickly. And I don't mean in five years, but sometime this year. And that's an assumption. But assuming that does happen, it's still going to take probably two to three years for the supply chains, plural, to come back into equilibrium or balance. Wow. So one year of mess and three years of of sorting all the kinks out. I mean, that's that's like basically what you're saying about COVID as well. You know, you shut, you lock down for two months here, two months there, four years of of unintended consequences. Anthony, I really want to just, uh, just to pick up on that just for a moment. And I'm not trying to get into the debate that the conservatives are having about lockdowns and so forth, but I was, and by the way, I believe in vaccines. I've had four. <laughs> I'm one of those rare Canadians. I've had four, and I'm looking for number five before I go back in the classroom in September. So this is not an argument against vaccines, I assure you. But I was uh, arguing even then that, you know, locking everybody up because the most vulnerable statistically, and it's even more clear today, but it was even clearer a year and a half ago, people over 65 are vastly more vulnerable than people under 65. That's why I have four vaccines, by the way. Uh, I can read the data, and I'm talking the death data. Death is not a theory. The the CDC, Center for Disease Control, publishes for the totality of the United States, not cherry-picking data from one hospital or one part of the country or one ethnicity. This is the totality of that population of 330 million 
and you look at the actual death from COVID statistics broken down by age, and it's overwhelmingly skewed to over 65-year-olds. Same with the Canadian data. So the point is, we did these lockdowns, and and uh, we did it to protect everybody, but the most vulnerable, by far and away, the most vulnerable were over 65. Sure, we had to do things to protect them, no question about it. But we never asked the question at the time, we just went, you know, hell bent for leather into the lockdowns without saying, wait a minute, people, what are the knock on effects? What are the unanticipated consequences? Now, you can't predict the future perfectly. But it does not require a PhD in economics to understand that if you shut down three quarters of the economy, that you're going to blow up the supply chains. You're going to blow up everything. You're going to blow up uh, energy supply chains, agricultural food supply chains, store supply chains, and so forth. So what I'm saying is I, I think that we overreacted. And we didn't have the data showing it at the time that it was going to save huge amounts of lives. And so I think that we're going to learn a lot from this so that there's going to be a ton of learning that comes out of this pandemic, both economic uh, uh, learning from the data uh, in terms of the impact on supply chains, the impact on inflation, and also from the healthcare side. And I'm not, uh, that's not my area. Do they want to learn though? Because I think there needs to be accountability. There needs to be royal commissions. There needs to be an inquiry yes. at, at every province, yes. every level, but I, I, it's yes. not politically advantageous for anyone because we haven't changed, changed governments. So it means is Doug Ford going to investigate Doug Ford? Is Justin Trudeau going to investigate Justin Trudeau? I don't know. I think you're, we need to get to the right. bottom of this stuff, I do but too. I, do I think they want to pretend the past two years didn't happen. I, I, the reason why it's not from, from my point of view, it's not to sort of point fingers at people and say, you know, you, right. you screwed up. It's more to learn and say, how can we make sure we don't do this again? I mean, you know, we just can't, I mean, really, I mean, the cost to people and lives, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a professor, I'm affluent, I'm comfortable, you know, um, yes, I, I'm annoyed paying $2 a liter in gas, but quite frankly, it doesn't hurt me. I'm being very frank And the food prices. I mean, my kids have left home, I don't support anybody, and I'm, I'm well paid, but there are lots and lots of people who are really, really being affected very, very badly. I'm talking uh, young people, low-income people, people on modest incomes that are seniors, and they're being affected by this. So I don't think that anybody can argue that the lockdowns were an unqualified good thing. There were a ton of costs. The, one, the other one that really bothered me enormously, Anthony, was the number. I had friends who were being denied cancer treatment. Yeah. They were told to go home because of the lockdowns. We got to create space in the hospitals yeah. for anticipated COVID patients. And we were telling people who were had advanced cancer just to go home and, you know, suck it up. I mean, and I just thought that that was, again, it was the privileging, yes, of one group of people at the expense of many, many other groups. And we didn't make the trade-offs that is the very core of public policy decision-making, that every decision involves trade-offs. And we pretended for the past two years there were no trade-offs whatsoever. And we made a huge mistake because people died uh, who were on, on, on queues waiting for treatment for cancer and heart and stroke and so forth. And we introduced this massive disruption to uh, our supply chains. And now we've embedded inflation, which in turn is going to drive up interest rates. I predict with absolute certainty, we're going to see much higher interest rates as a consequence to deal with these problems that were induced by the shutdowns that blew up the supply chains in the first place. And I want to ask you your thoughts, because you're talking about the long view of history. You were referencing the 70s. You're referencing other eras. I want to get your thoughts on the relationship between economics 
and, and, and culture and social turmoil because when you just summarize the cancer treatments being canceled, I'm a pretty chill guy and I have these academic discussions. It just gets me pissed. It's, it's an emotional thing. The blood boils. It frustrates yeah. me so much. I personally do not believe those things need, need to happen. I don't want to relitigate the finer points in it, but I know a lot of other people have gotten emotional. They've gotten pissed. In the past two yeah. years, there's been a lot of powder keg going on, whether I, I think the, the George Floyd Black Lives Matter protests were certainly, uh, the passions were much more acute because remember there were yes. lockdowns then. That was during COVID yeah. that happened. Uh, we had whatever you think of the Ottawa convoy. I mean, those were, were raw energies, raw passions that would not have come about were it not for these other things part of me says are we just beginning a period of social turmoil I, and i don't have that same you know longer view of history having lived uh you know have, i hadn't lived through uh, those other periods the 70s i took out mark kurlansky's great book 1968 and ah, fury you're kidding yourself because they would have a, a single protest in the u.s back then where like eight people would die at just one protest like, oh come on we're nowhere near that bad but it's like are do we have the ingredients for that sort of stuff. Because with food shortages, gas prices, your cancer treatment, yes. people are pissed off yes. and it's hard to blame them. Anthony, I do agree with you and I'm uh, and I'm completely nonpartisan. I don't uh, have a membership in any political party whatsoever, uh, but I do watch the um, the rise of uh, Pierre Poilievre and the crowds. I'm not getting into, you know, who should be the candidate. I'm not commenting on that whatsoever. Sure, sure. But I do note, um, uh, and I have I have students, you know, I have 250 students a year flowing through my five courses. And let me tell you, they give me an earful and they are, I think younger people are really, really upset. Hmm. They're upset at the fact they can't afford a house. They see my generation, the boomers is having, you know, sort of cornered the market and housing and we've got all the wealth and uh, they don't, they've been left with the leftovers and the scraps. And so I think that there's a lot of uh, anger out there and I think that uh, Pierre Poilievre is tapping into it, anger about gas prices and food prices and housing prices. So I think it's very real. Those crowds showing up being reported on CTV and CBC and Global are not fictitious. Those, those are growing large crowds. So yes, I do think that that's very real. I want to put another thought out there, or a, not a prediction, but I like looking at these sort of big trends and where are we going. I think we may look back in three or four or five or 10 years from now and say, you know, the whole pandemic and our decisions in the pandemic, starting with the lockdowns, precipitated a major rethink of healthcare in Canada. I think that that's going to happen. I'm not predicting Good. an American style healthcare. I'm predicting that we're, uh, what we're going to realize, it's, it's sinking in now that the, the, what I call the centralized top down model of all, uh, most healthcare has to be delivered in hospitals, any serious stuff. I don't mean going to the GO, to your GP with a sniffle, but on anything serious, you gotta go to a hospital. I have arthritis. The arthritis clinic in my city is in a hospital and it's just a clinic where doctors sit there and they yeah. grab your fingers and, you know, it could be in a clinic uh, in, in an industrial park where the costs are vastly cheaper. And, and I think that what's going to happen is when we saw all of those people being denied healthcare treatment, and remember, the premise of public health care in Canada was you will never be denied health care, unlike the Americans, because you don't have any money. Well, we got denied health care for a completely different reason, but we were still denied health care treatment when we needed it. And I think what's going to happen, this isn't to me ideology, it's about centralized top-down models, which I've long been critical of. You and I have talked about it. I think the top-down planning is a failure everywhere it's been tried. 
and uh, decentralized models are more efficacious and productive. And so I think we're going to see the emergence and, and greater support for things decentralized healthcare. So decentralized MRI clinics that are not in hospitals, eye clinics not in hospitals, arthritis clinics not in hospitals. They're going to attack it as, as, as private healthcare because the hospital CEOs, most of whom are not doctors and they, they, they make 500K, but if they can lord over a greater domain, they make 550K, they make 600K. If they can get more and more uh, under their little empire. And if the, you what you're suggesting is very, you know, it's just private delivery of healthcare, but it's still universal access. It's still paid exactly. for by the taxpayer. It's still exactly. regulated. It's still monitored, it's still investigated. And they exactly. will go to war to stop that from happening, which just brings better service uh, yeah. to to the, the citizen, to the resident. And I think you're right. The past two years have really opened my eyes uh, to all of that, that we are not being well served by the exactly. the healthcare, not not the frontline heroes, but the, the people lording over the domain. Exactly. And we're seeing it. I mean, and again, I, I am completely in support of public, uh, so-called single payer model, right. the Canadian model, um, which is supported by something like 85 to 90 percent of Canadians year after year in uh, healthcare in uh, polling the data. But uh, this is not, again, about uh, an American style system. What it is, is we realized when you've only got a handful, first off, these hospitals are frightfully expensive. We're building a brand new one in Ottawa called the New Civic. It's going to cost, it's budgeted at $5 billion, which means it's probably going to come in at closer to $10 billion for one hospital. We just don't have enough resources to build hundreds of hospitals at 5 and $10 billion a pop. And whereas you can decentralize, I'm not talking the big ticket stuff, trauma, emergency, uh, uh, you know, heart attack, cancer, the right, big right. stuff. But there's huge amount. I've been going to hospitals routinely for routine stuff like blood tests. What on earth am I doing getting a blood test at a hospital? You know, why am I going to a clinic so they can poke my joints, you know, once a year and take x-rays when I can go to a clinic? And so, and it's also the most expensive type of healthcare, by the way, inside a hospital. And so I think that we're going to see a revolution. I, I, I'm going to say something very um, provocative, Anthony. Go for I, it. Even though, even though the COVID crisis was horrible and people tragically died prematurely before their time had come, there is going to be, once we get to after it's all over, we're going to realize that there were a lot of unintended good things that came out of this. A recognition that we've got a, a poor, ineffective model of healthcare. We're realizing we can deliver education through Zoom to a degree. We can have people working from home and alleviating the pressure on congestion in the downtown. So there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences that are positive for society. And we're starting to realize that, you know, the and and so, yes, it was horrible that all those lives were lost but that it forced a lot of changes um, and big, big changes to society. And it reminds me of that book uh, by Mankur Olson some years ago, brilliant economist, The Rise and Fall of Nations. And he argued that as nations become more mature, uh, the, the each organization institution develops coalitions of stakeholders that just won't allow change to occur. And his thesis was, it's only when something really horrible happens, like a world war or a country war, that it, it breaks everything down and allows all kinds of change and permutation to occur. He was not advocating war, by the way. He was just saying, what are the consequences when you have a hugely disruptive event in, in a civilization? And his point was, it breaks down the, all the barnacles that, that uh, attach to you know, universities and to uh, hospitals that don't allow any change to occur because there's nothing pressing them to change. And then along comes some cataclysmic event in this instance, the pandemic, that forces people to re-examine uh, many, many uh, the things that how we have structured our society. I think 
universities and hospitals are going to be two of the areas that are going to go through profound change as a consequence of the pandemic. And that's a good thing. Ian Lee, before we go, I'd like to get your sense of where all this heads in the short and medium term. I know you said you're not optimistic that it's going to wrap up sort of immediately and things are going to return to, uh, you know, rosy economic situations. But what do people need to know in the next two, three years as they make as they make the big life choices we all inevitably have to make about our lives, our kids, our jobs, our savings, uh, our, where we live? What should be front of mind as people attempt to navigate this this seemingly new terrain? Oh, well, this is a Canadian uh, uh, broadcast um, and uh, uh, p- uh, podcast, excuse me. Um, and um, I appreciate the question because it may sound like I'm very pessimistic. I've been, I've been great, really, really fortunate. I've traveled around the world. I've been teaching in China once a year since 1997. I've taught over 100 times across Europe and the former communist countries, including Russia and Ukraine and many times in Poland and so forth. And where I'm going is out of all the regions and countries of the world, the two most fortunate countries are the US and Canada. We're surrounded by oceans on three sides, as you know, uh, in Canada. Um, and there's thousands of kilometers across that ocean to other the, the parts of the world. We have all of the resources essentially of Russia, but we're rule of law. We're not corrupt like Russia. We're not authoritarian like Russia. We don't invade other countries. Uh, we have incredible resources. And so I'm actually, uh, and we have immigration, whereas countries around the world are going to be depopulating. Um, see John Ibbotson and Daryl Bricker's book, Empty Planet, um, or uh, The Great Demographic Reversal by Charles Goodall um, in uh, UK, uh, the retired prophet LSE. And countries around the world are going to be depopulating, causing great economic dislocation. Uh, we are still growing because we have been for 150, 200 years very a pro-immigration, and we believe in immigration in the two countries. So I am actually very optimistic, much more optimistic for Canada and the U.S. future as opposed to Europe or Africa or Asia, where they are confronting very, very serious problems. Uh, in terms of younger people, um, because they say, well, okay, that's all very fine, that's very macro-philosophical, what about us? I just want to remind everybody that according to the pension estimates, BMO Pension Group and a couple of others, there's a somewhere around a, uh, a two trillion plus wealth transfer that's going to take place in the next 10, 15, 20 years from the boomers as they pass on. And it's going to go overwhelmingly to their children because we have stats, very good stats showing that most people, 98% pass on their wealth to their kids and uh, as opposed to giving it to a hospital or a university. And, uh, and there's very good data on this. And, and so the, the inequalities that we're worried about are diminishing, actually. I've got stats, I do these presentations showing our poverty rate in our country, even though the activists claim it's skyrocketing, this is simply false. The, sky, the poverty rate in 1965 was 25% of the population. In the mid-90s, when Harper left office, it was down to 15%. It is now down, latest data from StatScan is down to 6.5%. It's almost disappearing in our country. Elder poverty has collapsed in this country. The wealth of this country, we are one of the, in terms of per person income, we're fifth or sixth wealthiest country on planet Earth. And so the, the, if you want to go medium term, the, yes, we've got short term problems, no question about it. We've got to deal with the, the incredible shortages of workers and we, and we got to integrate Im, uh, immigrants into our country. We've got to recognize their credentials and so on. But the, the, for a young person in this country, and I tell my students this, out of all the places in the world, 
If you said, where would I most want to be for the rest of my life to minimize the, the, the risks of, of living, I would say Canada and the U.S. Uh, because right. I've been to these other countries and they have big, big problems. Well, it's good to put it all in perspective. Some negatives for sure, but I guess some notes of optimism. Professor Ian Lee, always appreciate your expert insights. Thanks so much for joining us for the conversation today. My pleasure, Anthony. Thanks very much for inviting me. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.